Catch Outdoors. I'm your host, Captain Rob Modis. This podcast is centered around the great outdoors, especially down this way in the most southern regions of the continental U.S., the Florida Keys. Catch Outdoors is hosted by Spotify and available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and Stitcher. So kick back and get a taste of the Florida Keys and my Florida. This week's episode of Catch Outdoors is number 100. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Fishing and Boats is the title. Fishing and Boats. Episode 100. Wow, crazy. Hmm, crazy like a fox. Seriously, this whole reason I started this daggone thing was to reach out to folks about living in Florida. And I've done that. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that. So Florida kept getting a bad rap. You know, as the pandemic raged on, just looking back to 2020, and I believe that most of them were just ticked off because we continued to do things that people north of us just couldn't do or weren't allowed to do. Hmm. I really don't know what to say about that, except I'm really glad I live in Florida. <laughs> and then a year ago, we moved to the Keys. So the podcast took an unexpected turn away from the rest of Florida, and I focused it down here on this string of islands. I had to. I love the place. I will also defend all of Florida. <laughs> Not just this year, but way before that, I even pondered changing the name of the pod- podcast. But uh, why do that? It's about enjoying the outdoors, especially um, at this point, you know, coastal Florida. Here's the funny takeaway about all this, though. Even though a great many folks pick on Florida, Hate our governor. Don't like the sand in their beds. I love that one. I've seen that two or three times now during uh, comments. <laughs> they keep on coming down here. Good. Spend the money. Have a great time. Then go home. I'm just kidding. You can stay here as long as you want. Um, and by the way, I will say this. If Colorado had an ocean, I'd be very happy to live there. Just so people know. There's a lot of places in the U.S. that if they had an ocean nearby or a big, big body of salt water, I'd, I'd probably do it. So, anyway, welcome to Catch Outdoors. Not Catch the Florida Keys, but Catch Outdoors. Episode 100. Good Lord. Oh, well. Uh, let's see. And the news. Uh, I always do this first. So, radio. I'll be sitting in for Debbie Hansen on Real Talk Radio, ESPN Southwest Florida, on September the 9th. That's a Saturday. While she takes a day off, I'm looking forward to it. Honestly, I'll be winging it. So tune in and hear what happens. I haven't gotten a co-host yet, but I'm working on that part. And I'll let you know what that is, hopefully, by next week. But uh, I love getting on the radio every now and then. Fishing report, much improvement on the catching side this past Thursday. I, uh, I tied up some new flies um, based on clousers, as one of my friends pointed out. But it's my modification. I, there must be a thousand modifications on the basic Clouser minnow. The Clouser minnow is nothing more than a mem- minnow imitation with like um, um, barbell eyes. They look like little tiny barbell, like a barbell that you would lift up to strengthen yourself with. Um, it looks like those, but of course they're about you know three eighths of an ounce down to one sixteenth, one thirty second of an ounce. But they're eyeballs basically. So I started modifying and playing with it. Based on my knowledge down here now from what I've been throwing in the water in soft plastics and artificials, on the West Coast, I use mostly chartreuse. Um, that water called for that. 
the color of the water called for it most of the times, whether it was uh, milky green or tannin, depending on the time of year. Down here, the water is very, very clear, and I noticed that fish really, really react to pink. So I have been switching and playing with a mixture of pink and other colors, whether it's browns or white or whatever. And I came up with a new one that I'm real proud of, and it caught a whole bunch of fish the other day, so I was very excited about that. It's always nice time, uh, nice to spend time at the vice and then come up with something that's your creation and you go out and they actually eat it. It's pretty amazing. Uh, water temperature much better for August, um, 83 to 85 degrees in the back. That would be just a few miles north of the Keys now, way in the back. I didn't go up there this time, so I'm not sure. I didn't see any snook. There are lots of good-sized mangrove snapper and quite a few uh, um, barracuda swimming around. Saw a tarpon along... Oh, two of the banks this time back there and uh but he saw me <laughs> forget that and then uh, a few sharks uh saw a nice big nurse shark in a canal and then uh two medium-sized bull sharks so uh so things are are improving i would have to suspect because the water temperature is improving tropical storm watch quite a bit of activity right now out in the atlantic and there's one to watch in the gulf of mexico apparently headed for texas as of this recording on Monday, that's today, uh, four areas to watch popped up, three in the Atlantic and one in the Gulf. They may have added another one since then. I, I, I did not tune in this morning, and I'm doing this at, what time is it? Almost noon today, so heck, there could be more. I know they've named some of them. Good news they ain't headed this way, so I'm pretty happy about that. Although the, the display across the... Um, the Gulf of Mexico, things are kind of lined up and it even looks like a balloon party because they use different colors to denote the times they think that these things will develop and it's just, it's kind of, it's a, there's a party going on out there. <laughs> I'm trying to be you know light about this, <clears throat> but um, Florida is going to be affected, you know, basically by rain and winds off of the edge of these things. As they go by, we get wind shifts that may, may suddenly come out of the south, southeast Easterlies, you know, they, whichever way these storms pull. And as a matter of fact, this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, we had a lot of rain off the one that the low pressure, the tropical low that passed between the Keys and Florida, you know, right, I mean, literally right right across the, the lower waters, and it drew a lot of moisture in. So, But we had much needed rain. Down here, it hasn't rained all that much this summer, so. Okay, so this is, this is, Podcast number 100. It's in two sections today. Uh, the first part is going to be general fishing tips for the Keys in the summertime. And you can apply this to a lot of southern waters in Florida. And I'll, I'll be more specific as I go. The second part is going to cover care and some maintenance for um, uh, boats. You know, necessary maintenance. Not not you have to fix it maintenance, but the, but, you know, that, the things when you, yeah, keeping it clean. Salt, water, and uh, humidity can be tough on a boat. Salt water in particular is tough on everything that we associate without being on the water. And the humidity is when you have the boat at home in the driveway covered up or on the side of the house covered up or in storage and it's not air conditioned, you can get a lot of nasty mildew problems in the summer because of the high humidity. So you really need to take care of the boat. <laughs> Basic rule for boats is start them up and run them at least once a week and preferably twice a week would be a really good idea. Uh, boats do not like to sit still. They do not. They they, uh, they will not perform. You leave them alone for a month and come back, and there's a good chance they won't start. So, temperamental son of a guns. So let's see. Um, 
Fishing in the Florida Keys. I'm going to repeat some stuff from last week's podcast just shortly, just to kind of give this, give you know, frame it, if you will. Um, start your fishing trips as early as possible. By the time 10 a.m. rolls around, the best tip I can give you is to go home. <laughs> it's over in the backcountry. You could try deeper holes back there, but my experience was mostly negative. If you're fishing from a smaller boat and the weather and winds allow, head out to the patch reefs out front. So if you're in the back, you're doing Florida Bay, Gulf of Mexico, all the way up here, of course, we're doing Blackwater Sound, places like that, and things just start to turn off at 9, 30, or 10. If the weather allows, and in the summer, a lot of times it does because it can be very, very calm most of the day until the late afternoon thunder showers show up. You can run out front and fish the patch, uh, patch grease, uh, reefs because they're only um, a couple of miles offshore. I mean, it's not, it's no, it's not even a, a, it's hardly even a trip. So give that a try. Um, 25 to 30 feet of water would be best if you can find that area that, that you got a patch reef in that. Uh, obviously, the deeper it is in that regard, not up to 50 feet, though, but you know, 25, 30, 35 feet, uh, you'll do better because the water's cooler down there. And uh, live or frozen shrimp work well. You can also drop a small grunt or a porgy that you caught on a weighted line. Might get you a nice grouper, a big old mutton snapper doing that. Don't, don't. You know, you get a little four or five inch um, grunt or a little porgy, by all means, man, hook that thing up on a circle hook, like a three, four-aught circle hook and drop it down. You'd be amazed what you might drag off of the reef. So uh, the bite out there has been very good and constant as long as you have tidal movement. I've had really, I've had some really, really good days out there just catching. Um Nothing real spectacular to report, you know, a good good batch of snapper and things like that. But uh, but if you if you you want to get entertained, it's a good place to go because everything you drop down gets eaten. <clears throat> Lures are fun to lose, use and lose. <laughs> Lures are fun to use, but only a very few are effective right now in summer waters. This isn't because of the overly hot summer, but in general, the height of summertime does cause almost all fish to seek cooler water. It has more to do with oxygen than it does with the water temperatures. Okay, so oxygen, there's less oxygen in hot water. And the warmer the water is, the less oxygen there is. As you go down in the water column and the temperatures drop, you get more oxygen in the water. And that's how fish work. So keep that in mind. If it's if you got hot surface water or warm to the surface, you're just going to catch less. That's all there is to it. They are looking for comfort, a comfort zone. And that's usually down closer to the bottom. Fish is like anything else. Got It's got to breed to survive. Um, and warm water just doesn't work out for them. So keep that in mind when you're out there. Uh, most of us carry um, a thermometer with us. Um, now, on the boat, you've got one that's attached to the, um, uh, yeah, that. It's deucer. I'll be okay. <laughs> Old age. And it's near the surface. The transducer on most boats is only maybe seven, eight, nine inches below the water level. So you're still basically getting surface temperatures. You have no idea what's down at the bottom. Uh, you can you can invest in, a, in something that reads temperature in, in the water. 
Uh, aquarium stores have them. They're, they're they're weighted. They're now made. They're safe. They don't have mercury in them. Uh, they won't break. They're not glass, and you can drop them all the way down to the bottom, and bring them up really fast and take a quick reading. Remember, as you bring them up to the water, the temperature is going to change. But as you drop it down to the bottom, give it a give it a 20, 30 seconds to adjust, and then pull it back up. You get a good idea what the temperature is. And cooler is better always. Um, so let's see. Um, Back to the lures. Um, ba- the basic thing is that fish will not chase a lure in the summertime in warm water. So it's just the science part. I mean, back in the back, if you go in the back country and you're fishing in three feet of water, the entire column is going to be fairly warm. It's not like fishing off offshore at 25, 35 feet of water. And so these fish are not are oxygen starved, number one. They're a little bit listless uh, because of that. And they just won't chase stuff. So if you think you're going to take like a hard plastic out there and rip it through the water, you're probably not going to get anything but a barracuda. And barracuda, I don't know, man, those things just don't seem to care. They'll be almost anywhere at any time and eat. So be aware of that. That's that's the lose part of a lure. Um, <laughs> um, so basically moving around and looking and helping. Uh, sometimes movement will entice a fish better than just the lure itself. So sometimes it has a lot to do with the angler. Like if you move it in a certain way and you jiggle it in a certain way or you stop, start it in a certain way, you're liable to elicit bites from a fish that's more lethargic. But just keep in mind that hard baits are kind of a problem. Lures in general are kind of a problem in the backcountry in, in the warm summer water. Think soft plastics. Um, longer in length. One of my favorites are gulp grub worms. Um, these have been around for a long time. They're generally found in the freshwater section of the stores. So if you go to a fishing store down here, you're almost like not likely to find one unless you go to Bass Pro down in Isla Mirada. But if you have a Bass Pro near you, there's, one, there's a huge one up in South Miami. Um, check out the freshwater aisle. Look for um, gulp grub worms. Now, these are longer, so you got a body that's already three and a half inches long, the grub part, and then has a real long curly tail off of the end of it, probably another three to four inches, so six inches altogether, I'd say. They love these things in the summertime, but you're going to have to crawl along really, really slow. Um, this is something that you're going to work. So the presentation is going to be a big slowdown. It's kind of like what I used to preach when I lived on the west coast of Florida in the wintertime. Winter waters uh, in the Sanibel, Pine Island area, it, it can get, it can just get downright chilly. And the fish will get really, really, they just won't bite unless you slow down. Same thing's true over here in the back when the water warms up and the oxygen level starts to drop. So you really have to work these things slowly across the bottom. Um, slow down the retrieve. Give them a chance to find and eat it. One of the really unique things about the bottom in the backcountry is its softness here in the Keys. Most of it is. Um, As you drag a lure across the bottom, you'll kick up bits of sand and silt. Uh, it, It appears kind of smoky as it rises up off the bottom. Fish are very attracted to this. It can mean that a a big fish is working the bottom out in front of them or near them, and so they move over to follow to pick up the leftovers. Also, small crabs and small fish can kick up the same silt, and that's food. So slow down and make the lure kick up some dust off the bottom. I usually like to use a jig head on my soft plastics at this time of year. Uh, the extra weight gets the lure to the bottom and also stirs up the bottom. So I don't just use like an offset hook or a worm hook or, or a, a standard um, 
a hook, a J hook in my soft plastics, I will almost always add some form of weight to the front, which of course would be a jig head. Quarter ounce minimum. Three ace works. You know, if you need half, if you really need it, if you're fishing in, four, in five, six feet in the back. But that silt really, really makes a difference. It's kicking up that little bit of silt draws them in. So keep that in mind. Color. <sighs> I've long believed that color doesn't matter. <laughs> and it, But it does. Just, I don't know. And there's times when I think it's like a dark color down deep doesn't make any difference. But up near the surface, it does. But here, as I mentioned earlier, I'm finding that pink, they are really interested in pink. I haven't tried much in the yellow uh, frame yet. Uh, I've used the chartreuse. I've used red. I've used purple. Uh, what? Oh, golden. Uh, there's a... Um, uh, Z-Man makes a, a jig head that's got a golden eye in it. I like that one. That seems to work. But pink pink just seems to do the best. So um, I think the real importance, though, is not just color, but in the way you move a lure um, and how it's pres presented by you and how it moves through the water as well. So the grub has got that nice, long, curly tail. You take your time. You bounce it along the bottom or slowly drag it on the, on the sand flats, and you'll get a response. If you move it too quickly, you pull it out of the water too fast, or you take off with it as soon as it hits the water, those can all be bad. You want to give it plenty of time for the fish to find it, take a look at it, and then hopefully chomp on it. So, And don't be afraid to play with the colors, but do a lot pink. Just do some pink if you can right now. It's working. Um, as a matter of fact, I would focus more on worrying about the color than I would anything else. Uh, let's see. You can also use, I want to mention this too. You can use some light greens when I'm, I'm talking pale colors, like, um, barely green, barely blue, white, things like that will also work. So don't be afraid to mix them up. And if you can find something that's got a combination of pink and white, boy, that's really do that. Uh, that's probably the way to go. Again, this is all summer waters. Sunny days down here in the Keys. Um, First of all, the water warms up really quick, but the visible the visible light causes you to use lighter things. So if you got a bright sunny day down here in the Keys, which that's mostly what we have, uh, you, you definitely want to stick with the pinks, whites, light green, light blues, things like that, lighter colors. Dark browns and dark greens are my choices for overcast days. So if I've got an overcast uh, hanging over the Keys and or it's cloudy and it's cutting the sun out, um, Think, think along those lines. I, I like light brown. I really do. I like to use a light brown, a solid light brown color uh, on the overcast days. And again, get it down on the bottom because it's still summer and try to make a little mud line with it or, or a little dust line with it. Let's see what else in fishing. Casting distance. Oh, man, that's important. The fish on the open flats and along the mangrove shorelines are very much aware of you. Um... If you get too close to them, game over. <laughs> That's all there is to it. You make too much noise, game over. You have to learn to be stealthy. You have to learn to stay way off of your target area and even make a few practice casts if you have to to see what kind of range you can actually get before you get to your target zone. Um, they'll shun lures in a heartbeat, like I said before. So you really, really have to, you have to work hard to, to get them to bite when the water's crystal clear in the summertime. Spend the money on a quality rod that'll deliver distance as well as fighting ability. That combination can be difficult. Sometimes you get a quality custom-built rod. Um, it's got a great backbone on it. It's got great lift. It's got a fantastically fast tip, but it doesn't cast worth a damn. 
You know, it just it doesn't it doesn't load properly, on, especially on lightweight stuff, on lightweight gear. So it's it's you have to really look and hunt for a rod that's got both, that has the casting ability with a flexible tip, but at the same time has enough backbone to catch and or to uh, reel in a, a big fish, which we get. I mean, the surprise fish is the fun fish, and that can be anything from, you know, Goliath grouper in the bushes, uh, sharks of course, and um, uh, big snook, a uh, tarpon, things like that. So and it's hard to find that. I'm a big fan of the Key Largo Rod Company. They make custom rods. They're actually located in Isla Mirada, but they started in Key Largo, so it's called the Key Largo Rod Company. They've got a couple of really great ones. One that I'm very, very fond of is called the Long Cast. I mean, that's that's its name. That's the name that they've given it, the Long Cast. It's about seven, seven and a half feet long, I believe. Um, a great butt end on the back end. I mean, strong, but very flexible and whippy on the tip. And it will throw a lure or a soft plastic a mile. That thing is amazing. So if you're looking for something that'll really toss it, you might want to check that one out. Um, they're individually custom rods. They're pricey, but they should be. They're well made, and I, I, I stand by them. I've already, I think, I own three or four of them already. Um, the shop's worth a visit too. You'll never see that many rods in one place again in your life, unless it's my garage. That, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> For fly fishing, a nine foot eight weight. That's kind of the that's the that's the the go to rod down here. In the backcountry, uh, floating line will work fine, uh, but you also might want to add an intermediate line setup. Now, what I mean by that, the floating line. For those of you that don't know, floating line obviously does what it says. It floats, and then you have the uh, leader, and then you have a tippet and a fly on there. The leader, tippet, and fly will sink. Uh, slowly, very slowly. But if you need to get down in deeper water more quickly, like in five feet, six feet, chasing tarpon, seven, eight feet, then you definitely want an intermediate line. Um, so just kind of weigh those out. I carry both is basically what I do. Um, in the summertime, as I mentioned, the fish are down, where are they? Yeah, bottom. So it might, it might behoove you just to do intermediate line to help get that thing right down there in the target zone because it's going to be that way through October. Uh, you know, November is when things start to finally cool off and these fish will start to move up in the water column. So you've still got a, got two and a half months left before they do that. Let's see. I'm too old to push a boat around <laughs> with a pole. I wrote this in my notes from a polling platform, so I opted for a trolling motor. Um, I mentioned last week that I added a pedal uh, to my Minn Kota Tarova. And I, that I would report on it this week, so I wanted to throw this out there. It's great. One of the problems I've had, and I'm sure others have too, with all these new, newer, they're not brand new, they've been around for a little while now, these remote control trolling motors is you have, they have a little controller hanging around your neck and you have to control speed and direction and things like that with it. And it's um, it's a pain. You know, it, most if you're if you're a two-handed angler, which we all pretty much are, I mean, you're casting with a hand and retrieving with the other hand. Typically, um, it's hard because you suddenly want to shift directions. You got to literally stop fishing to shift directions. You got to take the hand off of, of the reel. In my case, the reel handle, which of course makes the line go slack, drop to the bottom, where I don't want it to be. It might hang up in grass or something. So, same thing with speed adjustment has to be done that way. Well, the foot pedals they've came out with plug right into the trolling motor. If you if you have a trolling motor and you've noticed this little rat tail hanging off of it, this little connector, that's what it's for. And you can plug a wired pedal in and do everything you can do on the remote, almost, 
uh, with with your foot. So it's great. You can you can turn, steer, adjust speed, turn it off and on. You know whatever you might want to do. And uh, I, I just used mine this past Thursday. Hooked it up and played around with it, and love it. Absolutely love it. It it just eliminates having to take my hand off. And for fishing, it's it's great. I mean, if you're not fishing, if you're sightseeing, dolphin. Uh, uh, manatee watching, bird watching, stuff like that, then obviously controlling it with a remote is not that big a deal. Or if you're just searching, you know, you're not, you don't even have a rod in your hand. You're just kind of eyeballing an area. Remote's fine, but the foot pedal works a lot better for those of you that, that have, uh, you want to keep both hands on the rod and casting and retrieving. So anyway, I'm, I'm hooked. <laughs> um, let's see what else. Uh, I'm reviewing my notes here. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, it has the, the the new trolling motors have a thing called Spot Lock on them, which is an anchor, and most people associate that with like going out on to deeper water or a reef or something like that and using it instead of anchoring, which is pretty much what that's what it's used for. I found another use. Um, the Spot Lock is great for holding you in position after you've hooked a big fish. What I would, what I have done in the past is you hook up with something that's really decent and it's hauling you around. Uh, typically, you throw the power pole down if you can, if you can get to the remote quick enough. <laughs> yeah, and try to stop the boat so it quits dragging you, especially if it's dragging you away. Um, it helps you stop the fish, obviously. It just never really occurred to me. The the anchor lock does the same thing. The trolling motor will basically spin around and make adjustments to keep you in one place no matter what. Now, it can be annoying and it's loud, but it doesn't matter when you're hooked up. It, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. You're trying to control a big fish who's doing all the things it wants to do. Um, so that foot control has got the anchor lock on there. So when you hook up with a big fish, I don't have to fumble on my chest for something. I can simply touch that anchor lock and the trolling motor suddenly does its best to keep the boat in place. So there you go. Experiment with it. it may not be for you, but it worked good for me. So just wanted to add that on there. They don't kind of, they don't really mention that in the literature. <laughs> Something I kind of played with myself. Um, let's see. Talk about fishing line for a minute or two. Um, I like braid, but I also know that monofilament is still used by more anglers than braid. Probably will continue to be that way. Folks in the know attribute that to price difference. Mono is far cheaper than braid, and with the economy the way it is right now, mono is going to continue to outsell braid. Ain't no doubt about it. But in most fishing situations, braid is the better choice. It's thinner, it's stronger, doesn't have any stretch, it casts a lot farther, um, has more abrasion resistance, and it lasts longer. But it's a good deal more expensive by the yard. There's no question about that. But mono has its advantages, and I always like to mention this. This is really, really important. Monofilament has stretch. And stretch is really important. When you've got a big fish on, uh, or you're setting the hook on a big fish, and a big fish is running like crazy and diving toward bottom and doing the crazy things that big fish do, it's nice to have a bit of a shock absorber that's not just the rod. Braid doesn't do that. I mean, people get snapped off on braid a lot on big fish, and they complain about it. And I always mention to them, well, there's no shock. You've got the rod shock, but not a lot. And you may need more than that, and that's what mono does. So keep that in mind. It's it, Down here, it's a good thing, especially when tarpon fishing. A lot of people tarpon fish on mono. They do not tarpon fish on braid. 
let me explain saying something to you. Here, this this might help for the preference. Um, in fly fishing, fly fishing here is preferred for tarpon fishing over almost anything else. People here learn to fly fish to go get tarpon. Now, there's a couple of reasons for it. One, of course, is lure presentation. A fly is just it's lifelike and it's light. It goes in the water without a giant splash. It won't alarm a fish. If anything, the fish will turn around to see what the heck it was and then attack it. So that's number one. But number two is fly line is stretchy. Fly line is like just what I just described in monofilament. If you if you pull on it, you can feel it. It it has it it gives. You know, um, it's it's rubbery, if you will, and that makes a huge difference when you're fighting a tarpon. Plus, the fly line is, fly rod is longer. It's nine feet long with lots of flex in it, but still just as strong as any spin rod. So you have these advantages, and and I you know I was thinking about this the other day that when I was fly fishing. You know, it's really amazing what these big fish can do. They can take off on you all of a sudden. The rod has a nice spin, but you've always got that flex because of the fly line. I really believe that's why people um, get into fly fishing for the big fish down here. And that makes my point about monofilament. Use it. It's old school, but it works great for really big fish. Let's see. Okay, that's good on the fish side. Hopefully you've learned a lot. <laughs> now we'll do something simpler. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about boat stuff. But first, I want to share something I learned a few days ago, thanks to my lovely wife, Janelle. I always like it when, I, when, she, when she hits me with this. We were staring out of the Balfus window at the house. Woods, heavy woods next to us. And I noticed a Jamaican dogwood. And it had been chewed on by what looked like a caterpillar. The leaf had a leaf on there. And I was, I was like, hmm, interesting. I didn't know anything even went after those leaves. We have lots of butterflies around, but we had no idea what would chew on this native hardwood tree. So first, why do they call it a dogwood? I've always referred, referred to it as Jamaican dogwood. It's really a Jamaica dogwood. But it doesn't have anything flowering on it. No, but well, it does tiny little blooms, but nothing like a like a, a dogwood tree that you've seen in the South, in Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, and up those that way. It seems though this tree is highly sought after for its wood, for its lumber. It happens to be a superior wood for woodworking. Uh, it's it put it on a lathe. Uh, it's turned for bowls, ornamental bowls, ornaments, furniture parts. It's very, very drought tolerant, and it can stand a good bit of salt spray. The live tree can. Uh, Jamaica dogwood is not related to true dogwoods in any way. It's suggested, this is, what, this is the tidbit she gave me, it's suggested that the common name comes from shipbuilders using the wood for the strong central axis of the ship called the dog. How about that? So... <laughs> What was eating it? <laughs> now you know. Yeah, the dog. The keel of the ship's called the dog. Some dogwood. There you go. So anyway, what the heck was eating it? The Jamaican dog, Jamaica dogwood, serves as the host for the hammock skitter, skipper butterfly. Hammock skipper butterfly is actually considered a cross between a butterfly and a moth. We're going to keep an eye out for one soon. We know there's a caterpillar in the area that was mostly, most likely, I mean, most likely chewing on that thing because we couldn't find anything else that's interested in the dogwood. Um, and it's probably in the catalyst stage by now. So hopefully we'll have a hatch and I'll be able to report on what actually popped out. I've been really watching the area that the low hanging trees, the walls, they love to make, they love to put their uh, catalyst up under like gutters and things like that. So we'll see what happens. So there you go. Now you know what the Jamaica dogwood's all about.
Don't say it. Don't learn anything on this. Um, now on to boats, boat care. This is just a series of tips that I feel uh, I ought to give boat owners about upkeep. Uh, specifically small fishing boats, but this can also apply to the big ones, even yachts. When I was guiding in the waters along southwest Florida's coast, I had to deal with stains from mangrove roots, especially in the summer during the summer rains. The, the runoff comes through the mangrove roots, and it turns the water a reddish tea-like color, tannin. And it was very tough to remove from a boat. So most of us use a commercial stain remover that was normally used on the sides of homes to remove the rust caused by well water when the sprinklers are on. Um, yeah, it's called Rust-Aid. Very popular. Put it in a spray bottle, spray it on the boat, and rinse it off immediately. If you don't, uh, it will actually start to harm the finish, and it harms the finish anyway. I mean, it works, but over time it will dull the finish. No matter how fast you got it off, how you took it off, but it made the boat look better. It's a, it was a, it was an attraction thing. Nobody likes to see a boat with a great big orange line around the bottom of it, looking like it's been sitting in the water for a year. And as a guide, you know, I wanted my boat to be pleasant to look at, so I didn't want it to look like, yeah, you know. So that's what we did. But it caused a problem with wax on, wax off. <laughs> which is something we all dread. You'd have to wax the boat on a regular basis to keep the finish up on the boat. You, you don't want it to start the finish to go away. The sun will start to harm it and pretty much you'll get uh, problems with the fiberglass. And one thing leads to another in boats. Let's just put it that way. So, But I'm kind of lucky down here. We don't do tannin. We really don't have it here. So you don't see the stains around the boat, which is yay. So this is for those of you that do. Try to avoid using the rust aid if at all possible. But if you do, keep in mind that you're going to have to wax the boat to get that stain off. Good news, however, there is a remover made for boats, a stain remover removed for boats. It's in the Starbright line. I'm a big fan of Starbright products. Starbright makes everything you can imagine to clean a boat with. Um, so because they make all these polishing and these boat cleaning products, I kind of lean toward them when I'm looking for something for the boat. And I found that that one, if you want to remove stains, and in my case, it was leaf stains, leaves that are dropping out of the trees and the woods around me. If I didn't cover the boat immediately and there was water on the boat, I'd get one of those, like a rust stain. Well, that stuff will take it right out and it doesn't harm the finish. One thing I noticed about living and fishing in the waters around the Keys, we really don't have much of a problem with tannin, <laughs> plain and simple. But for those that do, I'd go with a brand that's specifically made for boat holes. Okay? So keep that in mind. Comes to black marks. Oh, my gosh. That was another horrible thing on, on guide boats. People wore hard shoes on the boat. They didn't know any better. They wouldn't put the flip-flops on or and, or they'd wear they'd wear a tennis shoe that was black on the bottom and, or hard shoes. I had those on the boat. And they have terrible marks on the boat. I was a pretty nice guy. I wouldn't holler about her to get it too upset. I just know I had something at home to clean it up with. So um, there's a product called On and Off. It's made for boats. Exactly. You put it on, you take it off. You put it on, it'll start to break down the black and it'll come right off. It's great. And then you rinse it when you're done. So keep that one in mind. General washing. Do not mix Clorox with the soap you use to wash a boat. Very bad. Um, Clorox will dull the finish just like, just like the other stuff I was talking about. Uh, but it was a necessary evil in my case and in all guides cases in keeping boats clean and most importantly, smelling good. Bait use, bait catching, fish crap, fish guts all seemed to cling to the boat in a very nasty way. And Clorox took care of that problem. 
but it created another. Wax on, wax off. <laughs> the most dreaded four words for boat owners. I'm not kidding you. So what to use in the regular or normal boating world? I like Starbright's Boat Wash. It's, it's just called Boat Wash. It's blue, and it works great. It's got a nice odor. Uh, it does not harm the finish, and it does not make the deck slippery. So after you've used it and you rinse it and you wash the boat down, you'll find the deck doesn't have a film on it that can cause somebody to slip. So that's pretty cool. There are lots of other cleaners out there. That's just one that I have sided up with that I like. Um, but, you know, you can just search them. Uh, you know, go to your favorite boating store. Go to the boating section of a store and just see what they've got. Pick one, try Pick two and try them and see what you think. Um, don't use car soaps. Car soaps have wax in them to make your car shiny. Wax is not cool on the deck of the boat. So I know it's cheaper. But it's about half the price per volume. Uh, for a car wash soap, don't, don't do it. Just don't do it. It's, uh, yeah, and it'll just make things slippery. You don't need wax on a boat. Um, it really hurts when you fall down on a boat in a cramped spot. It's, it's bad. Are there soaps you can use? Yes, there are. Dishwashing soaps. Quite a palm olive, things like that. They work fine. Um, they don't get some of the stains out quite like a boat soap does. It's got, it's got a stain removers built into them, but, but yeah, you can use those. I mean, I've used, I've used good old palm olive on, on boats for years. Um, just be careful again, that it's, that you're using something that won't take the, uh, shine off the boat, you know, it's safe to use and also safe to use on the deck of the boat and on the hull of the boat. Just, you know, so basically weigh your odds on that. Otherwise, you might be right back to wax on, wax off, which, again, is where nobody wants to go. When it comes to general preventive maintenance, keep the boat clean and covered if you can to protect it from the elements. And be sure uh, to do the recommended service intervals or maintenance intervals. The 100-hour service, as we love to call it. Well, boat, boat people in general have them. That's what they call it. It's a service place. That's where the oil is changed in the lower unit. The water separator filter is usually replaced along with plugs if needed. And most importantly, the impeller of the water pump is replaced. So there's a lot of things that kind of go into that 100 hour that, that you do. And it's gotten more and more expensive, but it's something you really, really need to do. If you've got a twin engine boat, you get to pay twice. So just keep that in mind. Single engine boat once, but 100 hours is important. You can push it a little, but I wouldn't go too far with it. Why? Because we have sand and salt in the waters that we boat in. Um, they're both very abrasive and will slowly wear down the rubber impeller that's job is to pull that water in from the outside and put it up into the motor jacket for cooling. So the less water, the hotter the motor gets. Most boats have a water pressure gauge on the dash, so keep an eye on it. And also on the P-stream that's coming out of the motor itself in the back. Um, it should be, it should be, it'll, it'll kind of stream eh, medium. And then when the boat's in, running, you know, boats uh, up at 3000 to 4,000 RPM, you'll have a nice steady stream. Kind of keep kind of an, an eye on that. And then note your gauge when there's a new impeller in it. What, what is the gauge sitting at? They're all a little different. Could be 10 pounds, 15, whatever. Just check it and then watch that, that it doesn't get any lower. If it starts to get lower on a regular basis and it's, it's time to replace the impeller. One, uh, 
one way, I mean, one way to extend the life of the impeller is just, is just rinsing the, the engine, is, is flushing the engine, as we call it, with fresh water after every single outing. Again, it gets back to the salt and sand, which you're just going to get in there. No, no matter how hard you try, you're going to get it. If you go in shallow water where you cough up some sand or you beach the boat, you know, you go into one of those sandbar parties, you're going to get sand in the motor. And there's just no way you're going to avoid it. Most of it will flush through, but a lot of it will stay. And that wears down that impeller. It works just it looks like sandpaper is what it is. So um, be sure that you uh, extend the life by doing the flush out. There's something I want to mention on the flush too. A lot of the new, all the, well, most engines over the last eight or nine years now have flush attached to the side of them. There's actually a little hose on the side that you, you pop out, screw on a, a, a water hose, turn the water on, and then just let it run through the engine. does not require starting the engine. You just let the water run through it. But using the flushing, the ears down on the bottom that you put on the intakes at the very, very bottom at the lower unit on the motor is a much better idea. The reason for that is when you start the motor and run water through it, the temperature starts to rise. And so the thermostat starts to open and sends the water to other areas that normally the, the cap one on the side will not get to. So in other words, the one on the side doesn't always clean all of the engine of salt. The running the engine does if you have the cups on the bottom that bring fresh water in and deliver it up past the thermostat. That was told to me years ago by a guy who's a mechanic. And I was like, oh, never thought of that. So on my boat, when I bring it in and I'm all finished washing, the last thing I do is run the engine with the cups on and do a thorough flush of the motor. Well, there you have it. I hope both the fishing tips and, and boat preventative tips helped out, as well as the fishing tips. Before I go, here's a reminder that I also have a few books on sale on Amazon and Amazon Kindle. I always have trouble saying that. Animal Kindle? <laughs> Amazon Kindle. You can also order What I Know About Fishing Southwest Florida, Bridge to Paradise, and Take a Kid Fishing directly from my website at Catch Outdoors. Those copies will arrive signed by little old me. And yes, there is a book in the works about fishing the Florida Keys. More about that later. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed my podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Facebook page is Catch you Outdoors. The website is CatchyOutdoors.com, where you can find all the previous podcasts and a schedule of what's to come. Until next time, get outdoors and enjoy. Enjoy.